Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Karen Henson. Hola. What's up, Karen? You know, can I be honest with you? Uh, I hope you would. I've had this song stuck in my head for a month. Sing it. Are you serious? I am dead serious. It is so annoying. Why that song? I don't know. How to get there? Couldn't say. Isn't that like I Dream of Genie? Yes, it is. And I haven't watched it in about 15 years. So why is it in my head? I don't know. Uh, you got to go way back to watch that now. You got to get on like, yeah. like archived TV or something. Well, I'm not know. interested in watching it. I don't want the song in my head. <laughs> How did this we, intro become I about? I don't know. What are we doing today, Nathan? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, today we are talking. <laughs> we, this had, I Dream of Genie has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Uh, today we are. <laughs> talking to Dr. Mike Heiser, who has written a handful of books, but probably his most well-known is a book called The Unseen Realm. And so we're going to dive into kind of worldview of the Bible and how the ancient people thought about uh, the supernatural realm. And it is super interesting. So I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation. I am super excited today to have on the phone with me, Dr. Mike Heiser. Uh, Mike is the executive director of the Awakening School of Theology and Ministry at Celebration Church there in Jacksonville, Florida. He previously was with Logos uh, in Washington and uh, has gotten actually multiple degrees, a master's and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin in Hebrew and Semitic studies. And then he had another master's from Penn, um, also in kind of ancient Near Eastern, ancient history, stuff like that. So uh, Mike is kind of our guide to talk about what we're going to talk about today when uh, in regard to the fact that, you know, he's he's studied this a lot. He's read a lot. He's done work around it a lot. And then ultimately, I think uh, that has culminated, at least to this point, to a book that he published about four or five years ago, called The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. It was interesting. I was playing golf with my cousin. Shout out to a truck over there in South Lake. But I was playing golf with my cousin, and this was like four years ago. But he goes, dude, have you ever heard of the book The Unseen Realm? And I'm like, no, dude, never heard of it. So anyway, we start talking that round of golf. And by the end of it, I was like, dude, I got to check this out. You know, So I did. I picked it up and read through it. And it was really super helpful. And uh, so really, I think today's conversation with Mike is going to be helpful to you as well. I would encourage you to pick up the Unseen Realm and move through it. I think it'd be really challenging. But just as far as introductions go, that's who Mike Heiser is. So Mike, hey, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So how did you become interested in the supernatural worldview of the Bible? So that's what the book is really pushing forward is yeah. it kind of reveals this tension between a 21st century post-enlightenment, Western, rationalistic, individualistic worldview mm-hmm. that really lives in the scientific age, and then also this worldview that comes from the ancient Near East. And so there are major differences between that. So why don't you just open us up by telling us, how did you come to realize the differences between those and how did that kind of stoke your fire to get involved in the discipline that you're involved in now? Yeah, I had to be provoked 
you know, provoked by Providence. And that's, I'm not exaggerating that in, in any way. That's literally what, you know, what happened. I actually describe it, you know, in the first chapter of the book. I went to Bible college, you know, for a couple of years and I went to seminary, a couple of seminaries for a year at a time. And I, I bounced around before I, I wound up going to grad school. The last thing in the world I thought I would ever be interested in would be stuff like angels and the heavenly host. You know, just, <laughs> I remember in, in Bible college when I was in Bible doctrine, we not only didn't spend a single day on the subject, we spent like, like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, literally. Yeah, your that entire was, degree my, is like yeah, 20 minutes. That was minutes my training, yeah. you know, until I, I'm, a, I'm a PhD student, you yeah. know, 20 minutes of this, you know, because it, it, it lives on the periphery and, and people just don't assign any importance to it. And, you know, one of the reasons for that, there are a number of reasons for it, is that we aren't thinking about scripture the way the, the biblical writers, you know, the ancient biblical writers thought about it. Mm. And we actually teach people and teach ourselves not to see things uh, in the text. And, mm. I, you know, I was oblivious to all of that. So there I am, you know, I'm at the University of Wisconsin. I'm, I'm, you know, a friend of mine who was also in the Hebrew department. We went to the same church. So we're killing a few minutes before the service. And I, like I say in the book, I, I don't know what the conversation was about, but the way it ended was life changing. You know, this this guy happened to have his Hebrew Bible with him and he just opened it up to Psalm 82 mm -hmm. and he handed it to me and said, you need to read this in Hebrew. Mm. And so I, I did. It wasn't difficult, but, you know, I'm a doctoral student. I've taught Bible on an undergrad level for five years. By this point, I've got two master's degrees. And, and so I, and this guy hands me his, his, you know, his Hebrew Bible and says, read Psalm 82. And the first verse is just, you know, more or less just destroyed my security. <laughs> you know, in, in my what have I been reading? <laughs> right. Well, you know, you look at it and it's, it's, it's simple, you know, Elohim, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's a familiar term for God, you know, Elohim mm -hmm. Nitzah Ba'adat El. God, capital G-O-D, singular being, God, takes his stand, takes his place in the divine council. Mm. And we know it's singular because Nitzav is a singular participle. So it's just basic grammar. But yeah. the next line of the of the very first verse says, Bekarav Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of the Elohim. Yeah. He, the first Elohim, passes judgment. And the first Elohim so, is singular. The first one's singular, the, the second, second one, one has to be plural because you can't yeah. be in the midst of, you know, of one. And well, what the Trinity, Mike, yeah, keep reading in verses two and th yeah, two through yeah, five. Yeah, yeah. You know, God is just castigating, you know, the, the other Elohim for being corrupt and wicked. So it's like, that ain't no Trinity. Yeah. So I looked at that and, and I said, well, that looks like a pantheon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. It's like God presiding over a group of gods. Other gods, so yeah. Like, what yeah. in the world is that? And, and I, you know, I was just struck, like, how in the world could I have never seen this before? Mm. You know, how, how could I have missed, how could, the, how could I have never run across this before? And, you know, I don't remember a word of the sermon. I mean, I was lost, you know, it just like, this just totally rocked my world. And, you know, fortunately, providentially, I had another thought. I thought, I'll bet Jesus knew this verse. Mm. And I'll bet Paul did. Yep. And, and somehow the theology that is so clear elsewhere in Scripture is not marred or undermined by this. How can that be? How does this work? Yeah. 
and it, it just honestly, it just became an obsession. It ultimately became the focus of my dissertation. You know, when I, when I started seeing divine plurality in, in Jewish theology, specifically something they used to call the two powers in heaven. Yeah, and we're not talking right. one yeah. good and one evil, but, but two Yahweh figures. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get away from it. You know, and, and, and the thought hits you like, you're in a PhD program and now you're having to stop and rethink monotheism. Like I, you know, I just, the thought just made me tired, but I, I couldn't pretend I had not seen it. You know, it just felt dishonest. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I went out, you know, I looked at, you know, commentaries like you would normally think to do. And, you know, yeah. evangelical commentaries is where I started. Absolutely no help at all. They're saying things like, Oh, the Elohim here, the gods here, they're just people. Yeah. They're just, Jewish elders, like really, mm-hmm. you keep reading in verse six, you know, where the, the God, the speaker, you know, says to the other gods, I said, you plural, our gods, our mm-hmm. Elohim, plural sons, plural of the most high, all of you. And, you know, in biblical thought, there's only one most high. That's not a brain teaser. So these are sons of God who are called Elohim. And, and you go over to Psalm 89 and you get the same council language and the sons of God, you know, are in the council there and the council's in the skies in the heavens. Mm-hmm. Okay, the last time I looked, there aren't a bunch of Jewish elder guys floating around yeah. ruling the nation. You know, yeah, it, right. it didn't make any sense. And the same thing with idols. What idols are on God's payroll? Mm-hmm. Like God only discovered like at some moment that they were corrupt. Shouldn't you have known that from the beginning? Yeah. Why would he hire them? You know, you know, all these just very obvious problems with what I was reading in the evangelical sources. So I, you know, I went to not even, I'm, at, I'm there at the university, you know, we read critical, you know, scholars and people who don't have any particular high view of scripture and, and they love Psalm 82. Yeah, right. <laughs> because it allows them to argue that the biblical writers were once polytheists and yeah. they evolved in their thinking to the wonders of monotheism. Mm. And, and again, there were a number of reasons why that just didn't make any sense. And there are scholars on the periphery that, that admit that it doesn't make any sense. And so I, I just got sucked into the vortex. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like I've, I've got to know how to resolve this. And so I was provoked. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> I was provoked. I, I had my cage rattled. And that's how I got into it. But it sounds to me like this buddy of yours, what was his name? The his guy name that, was Roger. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, I think you, you dedicated the book to him. <laughs> I did. But it, it's one thing to open up a, a Hebrew text and go, hey, you should really read this and that, and you read it and be like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. It's another thing, I think, when someone does that and then it like sinks deep into your soul, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's the what you've mentioned, alluded to it a couple of times, just the providential yeah. nature of this where where the Lord is going, hey, I want more people to know about the way things actually are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that man, it's, it's really cool how those little bitty mundane waiting for chapel kind of things end up pivoting your entire life. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it, it was the red pill because, you know, one, once I started to get into it very early on, I realized what it meant that, you know, if you're really going to be honest with this and, and really want an answer, you must look at scripture not as the way a, a modern person in the Christian tradition at any point would look at it. You must look at it the way an ancient person, the actual biblical writer, the people that God picked mm. in the second or first millennium BC or the first century AD, how they 
would have processed it. They would have known exactly what to do with this. Yeah, right. And you don't, you yeah. know, and, and so that I, I had to cross that bridge that, okay, I'm, I'm going to set aside the filters. I use this metaphor in, in the book. You know, I, I, I knew a lot of stuff. I was not a newbie. Okay. Mm, yeah. But I had had, I'd been sheltered. I had, I had had the content filtered to me through the grid of a number of very good traditions. There's nothing evil about, you know, Christian tradition, but, but by definition, all of these things, all of these denominational traditions are post biblical worldviews. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even the church fathers, the church fathers are two or 300 years removed from the new Testament. Yeah. Right. You throw the old Testament in there. Now you're over, now you're at a millennium to that. You know, I mean, they're so far removed. The closest of them are, are like, older than the history of the United States. Yeah. You know, I mean, when, when you start getting this perspective and then, you know, when it comes to the church fathers, you could literally count them on one hand, the ones that knew Hebrew. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there's a huge gap. To well, what's you got going guys on. like Marcion who's just like totally chucking it. <laughs> I, I know. It just, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just a food fight. Yeah, you know? yeah. it, and I knew what it meant. It's like, if you do this, I believe that somehow when we, when I was on the other side, the Lord would still be there. Mm-hmm. He's okay. Yeah. The scripture's still okay. Yeah. Yeah. I bet Jesus and Paul knew this. We know we've got, got to figure it out. It's going to take a while. I don't really have any help, but you know, I, I have I have bigger help than commentaries. I mean, Roger that, that. just trust trust God to to do something with this. But it's going to mean that people are going to look at you like you got two heads. Yeah. It'll probably cost your friends. It'll probably cost your job opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, are are you willing to do this? And I. Again, I don't know if it was a character flaw or a character <laughs> asset. I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. Yeah, yeah. You like bring it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about those two worldviews. Um, you said one of them is post-biblical, the one that most of us live in now, the one that mm-hmm. you lived in and that, that shaped sure. and formed your filter all the way until you're a PhD student, Wisconsin, you know, and it's like you said, you weren't a newbie. I mean, you've, you've done a lot of work to get to that point. And yet, I think it was John Walton that said, the Bible is not written to us, mm-hmm. but it was written for us. Yep. And we've talked about that distinction on this podcast before, but just unpack for us the differences between the worldviews and why is that so critical? Yeah, it, it's critical because that's what context requires. Yeah, good. You know, we, we talk about interpreting the Bible in context all the time, and we typically mean, oh, I got to look at the few verses before the one I'm looking at, the yeah, few right. verses yeah, after. Yeah, That's right. context. Or, yeah. or, wow, look at this. They used to use pottery, you know, <laughs> or they rode camels. Like, no kidding. You know, it, it, I mean, we... I'm not saying that the history of the camel is not important. Okay, yeah, it's important yeah, for the yeah, patriarchal right. era. I get that. All right. But what we do is we're afraid to include worldview in context. We are afraid to think thoughts like the biblical writers read pagan material. Mm -hmm. Another way of saying that is, you know, better sit down. The biblical writers read books. Yeah. Okay. Well, what, again, when you think about it, what could be more obvious? They're not illiterates. All right. Yeah. They're skilled at what they do. Of course, they're going to be reading things and and they're going to, they're going to be responding to what they read, but we're afraid, you know, we can't say that, that the content of the Bible is affected by, by the wider world because 
everything in the Bible has to be unique because it's from God. It's the word of God. You know, like, like I have emails where people get disturbed, like, like there's a, a law about the Sabbath from Babylon, you know, that sounds mm. like, you know, what you read in the Torah yeah. and it rattles their, their faith. And I'm like, what could be more obvious? Mm. Of course, there are going to be laws that are similar between peoples who live in the same region and interact with each other constantly. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that part of Proverbs is just totally lifted out of Egypt. Right. It's like the right. same thing. The, 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 the <laughs> Psalm 74 quotes from the Baal cycle. You know, I yeah, mean, totally. all this stuff yeah. happens all the time. There's a blending of them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, they imbibe on this material a lot. And again, but people are scared to include that yeah. as far as context, because nowadays I would say they get it scared off by the village atheist on the internet. It's just ridiculous, yeah. you know, but, but this is the kind of thinking that you have. Ultimately, it comes down to how we think about scripture and about the biblical writers and about God's decisions. You know, God picked people living in the second millennium BC and, it, and the task, generally speaking, was simple. Write something down that the people who are alive are going to understand. Can you do that? Yeah. Well, of course they can do that. And, and in the process of doing that, they're going to be dipping into literature that they know, that their audience knows. It's going to be useful to making a theological point. Right. It'll clarify where we're at and where they're at. Mm. Okay. We'll address what they think through these means. Of, of, of course, they're going to use, you know, metaphors and symbols and, mm. and things that, that would have immediately connected to their audience. But, and the, and the big element here, this is what your question is really angling for, is an ancient person. You know, we're not only afraid to make the biblical writers part of the ancient Near Eastern world or part of the, the first century world. And, and actually admit the obvious, that they're exposed to lots of things. And God isn't surprised by that. God expects them to master this material and communicate what he wants communicated mm. and to have it done well and, and to clarify good theology from bad theology. Okay. But the other thing that, that, that we sort of are afraid to dip the toe into is this, is the ancient person was predisposed to a supernatural worldview. Mm. And that may sound strange because, hey, we're Christians. We believe in God and the Trinity and the deity of Jesus. And, you know, all the, the concepts like salvation, you know, how does dying on a cross, you know, like have a cosmic effect? Like, that? I mean, that's a supernatural worldview, you know, mm. demons and say, you know, yeah, we, we do believe that to a point. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Until it gets too weird. And then we're like, eh. Yeah. And I, I'm not a charismatic and I'm not going to, you're not going to hear a charismatic apology from me. You know, mm -hmm. what I'm talking about is, well, the, the, the cast of characters is a lot bigger than that. Right. And there are passages in scripture you never seem to get to, or like Psalm 82 are obscured from your view. There are things, there are interrelationships between the world of humans and the supernatural world that, that I can guarantee you again, because I'm the doctoral student that had never heard of this. I can guarantee you, you've never heard of mm -hmm. because it just gets filtered out of the discussion. It never trickles down. And in some cases, your teachers aren't exposed to it like me. They're like me. I mean, they have, they're smart, they have good, they have lots of training, but, but these things get missed because again, of the filters of our tradition that, that follow us through life. We have a problem with being enlightenment people and we can't help it because we're modern. This is when we're born. Yeah. 
It's our culture script. It's our culture script. Yep. I think it's in the book I say, like, what would you think? You know, somebody comes up to you and say that they, they believe that they ran into a person possessed by a demon. Mm-hmm. Well, our default answer is, well, he probably needs a physical, you know, did you take yeah. his temperature? You know, you know maybe he needs you know, psychoanalysis. Like yeah. I mean, yeah. we are predisposed to look for a naturalistic explanation right. to everything. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that, yeah. but we have to awaken to the fact that that's what we're doing. Yeah. And, and then we have to realize, well, is the alternative really on the table for me? Would I really land there mm. or am I scared or, yeah. or do I think it's, it's silly? We have this, this thing about there are certain things we can embrace supernaturally and, and we still feel like we're rational human beings, mm. that, that people should respect us, that, that we're, we're intellectually sound. But if I go off and, and start talking about, you know, the sons of God in Genesis 6 or, the, you know, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview where the nations are allotted, you know, to the gods, yeah. you know, hint, hint, the theology of Daniel 10 comes from somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just invent it, okay? <laughs> he didn't just pull that out of nowhere. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Uh, that it wasn't an innovation, you know. But like, am I really going to think this is reality, mm-hmm. that these things correspond to reality? And a lot of you know, evangelicals with a high view of scripture, they just can't go there. And in unseen realm, you know, and, and in, in speaking, and some people love this and some people hate it. You know, I'm the guy that says, look, it's time for an honesty session here. Nothing we believe conforms to a materialistic, scientific, mm. enlightenment worldview. Yep. Nothing. Yep. From the existence of God to the Trinity, the deity of Christ, none of this conforms to that worldview. Well, it's almost like the way that we look at it through a naturalistic worldview actually diminishes what it actually is. So instead of becoming more aware and understanding in a deeper way what the scriptures are telling us, the the mm-hmm. culture script that we bring to the text, the filter we bring to the text actually diminishes what it is, which is yeah. ironic, right? Because we think, oh, well, surely if we can explain this, then we fully know it. And it's like, no, you haven't even scratched the surface of it yet because mm-hmm. your presupposition ties your hands behind your back, you know? Mm-hmm. To be generous here as well and also honest, you know, there's so much spiritual abuse you know, yep. with, within the church, I yep. mean, where, where there's a demon under every rock, yeah, you know, right. that, that it causes fear of, of, of embracing, you know, certain ideas because, well, that, that automatically puts me in wacky town over here with, <laughs> you know, this other thing that, you know, so I, I understand that I'm not saying it's easy, but we have to realize that this is actually what we're doing. We're selectively supernatural. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to ask ourselves on what basis do I accept, you know, these core doctrines, but I don't accept these other elements of a supernatural worldview that come from the same text. I mean, on what basis am I making this distinction? distinction yeah, yeah. And and honestly, again, if we're honest, we don't have an argument there. Yeah. We don't really have a basis for distinction. Now, I'm a biblical scholar, but, you know, for the last 20, 25 years, you know, I, I grew up even before I was a believer, I was always interested in anything old and weird, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I've always had an interest in paranormal stuff. I, I love the X-Files. I love Stranger Things. I even wrote a book on, about Stranger Things. You know, I, I love this kind of stuff. I, I like to say I'm skeptical of everything and willing to believe anything, okay? Both of these things are on the table for me because 
embracing the spiritual world does not mean checking your brain in at the door. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. It means you are willing to put it on the table and give it equal status along with everything else. Mm-hmm. And this, the claims of scripture in terms of the supernatural world you know, and worldview are coherent. Why? Because they all extend from theism. And theism is a tried and tested proposition that has done really well for thousands of years. You know, we're, n- nobody's going to come along and make it disappear or, or show that it's incoherent. Yeah. But if you accept that proposition, then there are things that extend from it that if they cohere with the, the major you know, proposition, then there you go. You know, you, you know, you have a basis, you know, an intellectual basis for at least putting it on the table. But we have a, a big problem with people who aren't willing to do that and they just – they miss so much in scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like, well, unseen realm. Mike says the you thought the gospel was A, and Mike says it's B. You know, no, it's nothing like that. Yeah, right. It's just that there's a layering of scripture. There's a, there's a meta narrative that you can't appreciate without making these adjustments in your thinking. You just you're just going to miss you know so much of it. You know, just for a, a simple reason like that. So I think it was, was it, uh, was it Van Hooser or someone said something like, when we come to a text like this, anytime you open really any literary work, but for sure an ancient one from the, from the ancient Near East, then it, you're immediately entering into like a cross-cultural experience. Mm-hmm. And so instead of coming in as a, you know, loud American and just plow over all of this stuff. Look at what you just said, or Van Hooser said. This ancient Near Eastern material, it's a cross-cultural experience. Mm. We assume that the Bible isn't. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, when it, and when it gets weird for us, we don't know what to do with it. And so we're right. like, uh, I don't know. When in reality, when you're in another culture and something strange happens, instead of going, okay, I don't understand that. Y'all must be crazy. Instead, you go, huh, what is that? Like, you assume that you're the one that doesn't understand instead of the other way around. And I feel like that that's a lot of our propensity in in bringing our filter to the text is to just assume if it's strange, then it must be the book's fault or the ancient people's fault, (laughs) not mine. When in reality, it's the exact opposite, you know? Yeah. I mean, what I say in in, in the book and lots of interviews, like the the goal of the book is not that, you know, you adopt all of Mike's positions, you know, on, on, on things, you know, the dirty little secret of the book is that Mike never had an original thought. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, all the content of the book is just footnoted. It all comes from peer-reviewed scholarship. Yeah, I, totally. I'm a doc yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a synthesis guy. Yeah. So I don't have any independent, you know, thoughts for you. And I don't care that you embrace any. But what I want, when you read the Old Testament, I want the ancient Israelite living in your head. Yeah, good, good. And I want the first century Jew living in your head when you read the New Testament. Good. That's what I want. Yep. So if that takes hold of you, you will never read the Bible the same way again. Yeah. And, and I can say that not because I'm just an expert marketer. Okay. I don't have a marketing bone in my body. I can say that because I lived it. Yeah. Okay. I, I went through that process where I, I had to submit to it. I mean, yeah. I'll, let's just be blunt about it. I, I had to let the Bible be what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like you submit to it instead of the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, one of the things that I see consistently when you do talk about this unseen realm of other deities, probably most evangelical Americans just assume Mm -hmm. that there really is just one deity 
and mm-hmm. it's Yahweh, and he's Father, Son, and Spirit. We affirm the Trinity, but there's mm-hmm. really just one. We just assume that he's by himself, that there are no other actual deities. Right. And any deity that's re- referred to in the scriptures is not a god at all, mm-hmm. um, that people are just like conjuring up these things psychologically in their minds to try to explain mm-hmm. like the Baal cycle, you know, to try to explain the weather or something like that. When in reality, the biblical text is assuming that Yahweh is not alone, that there are mm-hmm. a ton of other deities, even though he is the highest one or the chief deity among the gods. So yeah. um, just speak real quickly to that, because I think that people all of a sudden are like, oh, well, dang, are we actually monotheists or yeah. are we polytheists? I would say it goes beyond elevation of status of Yahweh. I, I like to use the phrase Yahweh is species unique. Good. Okay, there is only one of those. And it happens to be, you know, you know, God in three persons. But to back up a little bit, the reason this creeps us out, I mean, it, it's transparently there in the text. Elohim, that's Abba'a.el, Bekerab Elohim, Mishpot. I mean, boom, there it is, okay? Mm-hmm. It's Elohim two times in the same verse. Once it's singular, the other times it's plural. Yeah, and that's Psalm 82. Psalm 82, one. one. Yep. And so this is why, you know, we, we get creeped out by this. And so, oh, well, maybe the Elohim here are just men. And, and, there, and there are some really terribly weak arguments, you know, to make them men. Well, those are the Israelite judges appointed back in Exodus 18. Well, guess what? The judges are never called Elohim there in that passage. Ooh, that's a problem. I mean, I mean, I, I've been through all of these, you know, things and, and it, you know, Psalm 89 just kills them all. <laughs> <laughs> the council is in the skies. Yeah. What more do you need to yeah, know? Right. You know, yeah. there's all sorts of problems with it and, and it, it shouldn't be problematic, but to our ears and our eyes, we get creeped out because, we just mentally, and this is because of who we are, it's both Christian tradition and just being a Westerner. We look at the letters G, O, and D, and we mentally, without even thinking about it, our brain just defaults to a unique set of attributes that go with those letters. Yep. Again, we, we just reflexively do it. G-O-D, oh, that's omniscience, omnipotence, sovereignty, creatorship, you know, all these things. The problem with defining Elohim or equating it with a unique set of attributes is that the biblical writers use Elohim of half a dozen different things right. that are not the God of Israel. Right, right. That alone you don't have to know Hebrew to, to understand that that alone tells you that Elohim doesn't mean that specific set of unique attributes because they would never assign those attributes to things like, you know, the Shadim, the demons in Deuteronomy 32, 17, mm-hmm. the disembodied, you know, dead Samuel in 1 Samuel 28, 13. You know, he's called Elohim there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they would never do this. And so the, the term itself can't be equated with a unique set of attributes. What it really boils down to is Elohim is a term you would use, a biblical writer would use to label any member of the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. Okay. All of the members of the spiritual world are by nature disembodied spirits. Okay. They, it's like a term of address. It, it defines where you belong, what, where your correct address is. All right. If you're an Elohim, oh, you're from that world. Got it. That's all it means. Now, in that world, there are lots of Elohim, mm-hmm. but in that world, there is rank, 
there is hierarchy, there is distinction of attributes. How do we know that? You know, and it isn't because Mike has a PhD, I just have to bow down and, you know, like just believe it. No, you can check it yeah. because the biblical writers will specifically deny those attributes to other Elohim and assign them only to one, Yahweh, mm. the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. So what, what it comes down to is Yahweh is one of many Elohim, but no other Elohim is him. Right. Period. Yeah. You know, exclamation point. That is biblical theology. It's where we would affirm that is monotheism. Right. The, the, the problem with monotheism is because it's a modern term. You know, we can't escape that. It, it, it came into use in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And so because we define G-O-D as a set of attributes, when you use monotheism, you're, you're caught in that trap of, of saying, you know, well, the Elohim, that has, that's a set of – no, it's not. I mean, there's a disconnect between the, the term monotheism, even though we, you know, we understand what's meant by it, okay, or what word ought to be meant by it. We understand and embrace the uniqueness of the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. There mm -hmm. is no other, okay, right. like him. These are all statements of incomparability, by the way, because the same uh, statements, there's none beside me, none like, you know, none like me, no, there, besides me, there's no other. These are used in a couple places of cities, mm. like once in Zephaniah. Zephaniah is actually good for something here. <laughs> uh, once in Zephaniah 2 and, and in Isaiah, where Babylon refers to herself, you know, and says there's none besides me. Nineveh is the other one in Zephaniah. There's none besides me, really? So we're, we're supposed to conclude that there are no other cities that exist? Yeah, right, right. It's absurd. Yeah, right. But what, what it means is, is, is I'm the best. Yeah. I'm He's in a unique class by himself. Right. Yeah. Th this is how th these terms, these phrases align with the divine plurality mm. of passages like Psalm 82. Mm. And it doesn't mar the uniqueness of the God of Israel because in biblical thought, he is the only one who is creator. He is the only sovereign. He is the only one who's omniscient. He's the only one who's omnipotent. And again, these attributes are specifically denied to all others. Hmm. So the theology is clear. You know, there, there are other terms, monolatry. You worship only one. There are others, but you worship only one. Okay, that, that helps, but it doesn't say enough because we need to still distinguish Yahweh ontologically, mm. you know, like species unique from the other ones, right. you know, henotheism, oh, there's one that there's a bunch and we just worship this one. We think he's the highest. Well, in henotheistic systems, that status can change. The high deity, you know, gets to be the high deity because of some victory or some, yep. uh, you know, perceived wonderful thing that they do. A biblical writer never thinks that. If you walked up to a biblical writer and said, oh, I get it, you know, Yahweh, he's the, he's the high, most high. And, but, you know, like uh, next year, it might be another one, right? Yeah, like somebody's going to unseat him or something. Right. It, they, they never think in these terms. Right. So our, our vocabulary sort of hinders us. But again, we, we can't really escape it because we've inherited from modernity. This is how we, we talk about it. So what I tell people is, look, don't worry about the terminology. You're, you're better off, instead of trying to stick a label on what a biblical writer would think, describe what he would think. Yeah, that's good. Because, I mean, even language itself are just symbols that are, are our attempt to describe something that is real. And that's why language moves, you know, and you're, you're, well, it's like this and not like this. And you, know, you have to narrow it down, so to speak. Communicate the idea. Right. I mean, it, it's easy 
if you have a, a label, oh, I could just use the label. Now yep. I don't have to work. Yep. Well, then you have to make sure everybody <laughs> who hears the label understands what the label is representing. Right. And that it doesn't change. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so just to summarize what you've said, uh, um, what I'm hearing you say is the worldview of the scriptures from an ancient Near Eastern standpoint and from a standpoint of a kind of second temple period, first century Jew um, mm-hmm. is a lot broader than the one oh, that yeah. we have today. Yeah. And that when we bring our post-enlightenment rationalisms, scientific age type mentality to the text that we're actually hindering it or or reducing it down and making it less than what it actually is trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. And that in order to not make some pretty critical mistakes, we really need to, I like what you said, think like an ancient Near Eastern Israelite, think like a first century Jew. It really matters, you know, for, for things like, let's just pick one to, to me, obvious example, again, but, but I've had my head in this for some so long. It really matters for something like theodicy. Mm, yeah. Okay, the relationship of God and evil, because when you start realizing that, you know, divine counsel is just another term for heavenly host. Okay. You know, it's a biblical term, but it just means the heavenly host. And the heavenly host is composed of lots of Elohim. And all that means is we have lots of spiritual beings. Okay, I, I got it. But when you start talking about the heavenly host as a council. It, it gets you into you know, decision-making in the heavens. And there are passages where God allows his counsel to participate in decisions, just like he yeah. allows humans yeah. to participate in what he wants done. Just like God doesn't need a council. He doesn't need the church either. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need anything. Yeah. But, but this is how God them. functions. He wants them. And, and when you when you when you get into that, yeah. the function of the group, that it ultimately it takes you back to the concept of imaging. We're created yeah. as God's imagers. Yep. We have a status to, of being his representatives, and then he shares his attributes with us. Well, Genesis 1.26 isn't God, you know, speaking to the Trinity because the Trinity already knows what he intends to do. Yeah, He's speaking, yeah. you know, to the heavenly host. And that's important because the language there somehow connects God and humans and them. And they're both imagers. They image him in the spiritual world. We image him on earth. And when he shares his attributes, one of those attributes is freedom. Mm. The ability to make an uncoerced decision. Yeah. And what that means is that God has free will beings not only here, but there. Yeah. And that creates the potential for rebellion, disobedience, failure. Mm-hmm. Why? Be- because God knows something. I mean, he, God is, is okay with the decision. This is how I'm going to create beings who are like myself. I know what it means. I know there's going to be failure. Yeah. I know there's going to be rebellion, but I'd rather have a world where that is, exists and not have them at all. Yeah. And so God takes that step to create things that way. And we have to realize again that The evil in the world, yes, it's a result of this decision, but it's a result of free will beings in in both spheres. And again, God is is aware of this. You know, he he knows that they're going to do this because as equipped as they are, he has shared his attributes with them. Mm -hmm. They're not him. Okay. They don't have his perfect nature. Mm -hmm. They're going to fail. They're going to seek autonomy. They're going to resist his will. And his plan, it's just going to happen. And it does. And it, you know, it did and it does. But God doesn't need to make evil happen. No. It's, it's derivative. Yep. You know, and God's not surprised by any of it. No, no. And I think ultimately the reason is that he's like, hey, I, yeah, you don't want a world full of like robots. And there's an interrelationality 
to it. Not only don't you want it, you can't have it and have imaging. Yep. Because totally. God isn't a robot. Yeah, I love it. If you take free will away, well, I like all the other attributes, you know, but I don't want anybody to have free will. That's just scary. Well, if you take that away, then we cannot, by definition, be like Image God. Him. Yep. We can't do it. And ultimately, you can't love. Right. I love it, man. Well, hopefully uh, this has been helpful for you guys listening in. I know <laughs> we're introducing some stuff that may make your head spin. So I'd encourage you to maybe listen to this a couple times. But uh, we're going to be back next week with Mike Heiser to talk even more on Heavenly Council and, and frankly, too, how this plays out for us today. So join us next week for the Equipping Podcast. You guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you liked it, tell people, share it with your friends, rate us on iTunes, send us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Bye. Peace.